Marmots Dorland, and welcome to the Marmots Hole podcast, brought to you each week by KoreaFM.net, an online radio station featuring independent musicians and original podcast content from the Korean Peninsula. Of course, each episode, I'm joined by Robert Kohler, the magazine editor here in Seoul, who for years operated the Marmots Hole blog on rjkohler.com. Today, we'll start again with a short discussion of three recent stories and then focus on North Korea's claim that it will soon test a long-range rocket. So, Robert, great to have you on the program. Uh, we've seen a lot of things happen this last week, so kind of a busy show. Well, it's uh, always, uh, always fun on the Korean Peninsula. Well, perhaps even more fun uh, here in a bit once we get to that uh, North Korean rocket story. We'll kind of talk about that. Um, there's kind of an open date set on that, so we're not sure exactly when that's going to happen. Um, but whenever that period begins to whenever it ends... Um, I'm sure people will be on a little bit of an edge here. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but first, let's get to three other stories that occurred in the last week. Uh, this week, the president of the state-run English broadcaster Arirang TV tendered his resignation following reports that he misused company funds on a business trip to New York where he had a lavish caviar meal, among other expenses. The Korea Jungon Daily reports there's been quite a lot of public backlash over his alleged use of company funds during that business trip to the U.S. in September to cover President Park Geun-hye's address at the United Nations General Assembly. Arirang aired the event live, and uh, the company denies that its president misused corporate money during the trip, but admits that mistakes were made when expenses were recorded. Now, Bang Sukho is a former Hongik University professor who was only appointed as president of Arirang TV in December of 2014. And correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, this guy seems to have spent quite a lot of money in New York City on some interesting things. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously what he's accused of. Um, you know, uh, one particular lawmaker who passed on uh, this information to one particular newspaper uh, accused him of. Well, let's see, just taking a look at uh, the list here, um, $6,000 on a uh, first-class uh, flight to New York, uh, nearly 700 per day on a rental car, uh, $1,400 on dinners at two uh, top New York City restaurants, including the uh, caviar uh, dinner. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of money being spent, um, especially considering that uh, Arirang TV is not in the best financial shape. Um, according to uh, one lawmaker who was talking to another uh, Korean newspaper, I mean, the, the, the company has been running deficits uh, continuously since 2003. Um, they, they're, when they were founded, they're, uh, their initial foundation in 1997 was uh, 70.5 billion won, and now it's only at about 10 billion. Right. Um, and the, the, the company uh, has apparently been or at least has been reportedly asking uh, the government to uh, to 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 pass a bill that would give them financial support. And you can imagine how this looks now. You know, if the, if the company is in trouble and it's it's asking the taxpayers for money and then you have, you know, the president going and dropping this kind of money in new york city it looks bad now in fairness the money that was spent according to iron tv anyway um was for the most part in the course of carrying out his duties i mean he had to wine and dine you know uh you know, for example one 
one the uh, caviar dinner, which is, seems to have gotten people really ticked off. You know, there was a UN official present there. You had to take out uh, the the head of the Korean Cultural Service in New York City. You know, it's not uncommon for officials, or it's not uncommon during you know gatherings like this to drop a lot of money. Um, but yeah, it doesn't look good. And uh, you know, he was also suspected of you know bringing his you know using corporate money to bring his family along um he denies doing that he says that his wife and daughter you know they took separate flights and he paid for that himself um so i mean iron tv does have explanations for all this um but yeah it's just yeah obviously it doesn't look good well, if there are so many explanations, why the resignation, do you think? Was it a calculated choice like, okay, doesn't look good? It, you know, perhaps they say it was all by the books, but just not a good situation. Let's cut our losses and move on. I mean, I feel like in, in Korea, there, there are a lot of worse things that have happened where people haven't resigned. But res- resignations are normal here, though. So, um, I mean, I'm not the Board of Audit and Inspection, so I don't really know what's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, the TV did admit that uh, that 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 Mr. Bong did misuse, mistakenly used a corporate card to buy his son a uh, graduation dinner. I guess his graduate son was graduating from Duke, so they went down and dropped uh, something like twelve hundred dollars on a on a graduation dinner, which you know could happen. Um, and they mistakenly used a corporate card instead of his personal card, uh, and he's paying that back. I don't think that's something you'd necessarily have to resign over. Um, but, you know, I was reading the Kyungyang Shimun to the Kyungyang Shimun has been the one that's been breaking a lot of news on this. And uh, they, granted, we are talking about uh, a a paper that does not like the current administration. So I read, you know, stuff in them. Well, I, any type of, any paper I read with, with, uh, with a grain of salt, but, um, they were looking at his pattern of expenses, which apparently got leaked to a lawmaker and then the lawmaker leaked it to them. Um, and they're noting that he was spending a lot of money within a short distance from his own personal home in, uh, in Changdamdong. So they suspected that a lot of what they were the 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 suspicion that they were raising was that he was using a lot of money for personal reasons. Again, we don't we don't know if that's the case. In fact, actually, I was reading one paper today was that that suggested that you know he was being you know that he was resigning as a way of you know for the government to keep you know, basically put a, an early end to this and you know keep people from going further into the the way the money is being spent. But like I said, I don't know. If that is the case, or even if it's not the case, do you think that might be the end result? Will this kind of, um, you know, stop the blood flowing from the wound? Or is this going to go further? And, and do you think there might be some charges at some point? Uh, it's hard to say at this point. Yeah, it's still early. We'll see. All right, well, we'll leave it at that. It's <laughs> Will it be a closed wound or will it be an open <laughs> so wound? Yeah, I, I really don't know what to say. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I, I, like I said, I read the Kyung Shimun reports on this, and yeah, things look suspicious. But then I read some of the, you know, Arirang TV's explanations, and I, they, they don't seem completely unreasonable. I mean, we'll, we'll see. Like I said, it's, uh, 
you know, the story only broke two days ago, so we'll see how it goes. Really good tip of the cap to Adi Dog. What was that you just said? They didn't seem completely unreasonable, so. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, you know, as far as I could tell, um, the only real, you know, bilking the, yeah, the only real legal mistake that got made was, was something like $1,200, which, you know, is, you know, that's nothing. Um, so like I said, we'll see, um, there, there might be more coming out of this. There might not be, well, you know, still too early to tell. Well, that's why we do the show every week. So we'll see what happens in the future. Um, moving along now, something I'm sure you're going to have to include a lot of your own, um, input on this and maybe some facts. This is not something I am well versed in, but you know, I, I can read. And so I took some notes, but, um, basically the New York times is reporting that the quote surreal South Korean novel. The Vegetarian is finally going to have a chance to make a splash in the English literature world. Uh, Han Kang, the author of the book, published the novel in South Korea nearly a decade ago, and the Times writes that, quote, literary critics found it baffling as the story stars an unhinged heroine who believes that she's turning into a tree and features some of the strangest erotic passages in literature. However, The Vegetarian became a cult international bestseller and now, thanks to Deborah Smith, who is a 28-year-old British translator, a British publisher has decided to publish an English translation of the novel. So, uh, Rob, why don't you pick it up from there? Uh, this was your choice. You wanted to talk about this. So uh, it's, it's definitely an interesting story, but you know, I, I want to hear more about this. Why did you want to discuss this? Do you think this is going to be a big hit? Well, um, whether it's a big hit or not, it, it, for me, it, it kind of it, it's more representative of something else that uh, of another... Uh, trend that we've been seeing, which is that Korean literature is starting to pick up. You know, uh, we are seeing more and more interest overseas uh, in Korean writers and Korean novels. Um, you know, obviously, uh, there was uh, uh, the Xinjiang Soup novel, uh, Please Look After Mom, you know, that was kind of, I guess you'd look at it as the big breakthrough novel, you know, that brought Korean lit to uh, to a Western audience. But you know, since then we've had uh, I have the right to destroy myself came out. Uh, obviously, the vegetarian's out now. Uh, the hen who dreamed she could fly is out. Um, you know, so we're seeing more and more interest in Korean lit. Um, I've actually interviewed a couple of people related to this field, and one of the things that they note is that the the level of translation in Korea, uh, the, the level of translation for Korean literature. Uh, in the old days, it, it used to be kind of spotty, but now uh, translators are doing a much better job of, you know, not just translating the language, but translating nuance and and, and, and meaning and context. Um, so you're seeing a lot better translation coming out. Um, and you have group, and, you know, both at the, you know, both, you know, through private initiative, but also with the Korean Literature Institute of Korea has been doing a lot of work uh, working really, really hard to uh, to bring Korean literature to a to a more global audience. Um, in fact, actually, um, if uh, our listeners get a chance, they really should check out the uh, recent piece in the New Yorker on uh, on on Korea's efforts to translate uh, Korean literature and you know with an eye, albeit with an eye to eventually winning a Nobel Prize in literature. Um, whether that can be done through government efforts that, you know, they're a bit skeptical, the, the, the New Yorker is a bit skeptical as they should be, but, um, it's a, it's a fascinating piece. Uh, and they do interview a lot of people that we probably mutually know. 
Um, the other thing that's that's really working in Korean lit's favor is that um, because of the Korean wave, because of things like Korean pop music, Korean dramas are starting to catch on. They're starting to get, you know, uh, they're starting to get an audience, and because of that, people are starting to get an interest in other aspects of of Korean culture too, in, including its literature. And as somebody who works in public, you know, obviously I work for a publishing company, so this is, you know, I, I speak with, you know, some degree of self-interest here. <laughs> um, there is something uh, beautiful about literature, and, and literature is able to convey uh, many aspects of culture that movies or music can't. So it, it does give you a, a more profound sense uh, of, of a country's culture and a, and a more profound and a deeper sense of, of, of a country's, uh, of its history, of its, uh, of its people's uh, belief systems, of their ways of, of thinking. Um, and uh, yeah, it's nice to see it uh, start to, it's nice, it's nice to start to see overseas interest in it. Um, it's still, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of people in the industry, they'll say, they will tell you that it's still got a long way to go to before it gets the kind of level of interest in the West that let's say Japanese writers have been getting. Um, actually kind of think of it. Um, another thing that's been working in Korean lit's favor is that, um, well, um, I, I, I was recently talking with, uh, somebody, uh, the chairman of, of, of a very large international publishing company. And uh, one of the things he noted was that uh, Japanese authors, for example, for a very, very long time, a lot of them have been living overseas. Uh, you know, they're able to write, even in Japanese, they're able to write in ways that are understandable to non-Japanese audiences. And, more to, and moreover, they write not just what they want to write, but what audiences want to read. Uh, and at least according to this particular uh, CEO, um, Korean authors are starting to do that now. You know, they might not have been doing that before, but they're definitely starting to move in that direction, you know, where they're becoming a little bit more aware of not just what they want to write, but what audiences want to read. Now, in Korea, that's a bit difficult because uh i think i you may have mentioned but uh koreans are not the best not the biggest readers which is surprising by the way because i mean korea is a you know traditionally speaking a nation of scholars you know when you you know when they went you know when when korea when the chosun dynasty you know during the chosun dynasty when you know koreans would send trade missions up to beijing uh, and they would come back with, you know, gifts from the Chinese, you know, the most prized gifts that they got were books. At the same time, though, Korea has a past full of um, different levels of slavery and also a lot of poverty for people. So maybe at the top, prized possessions, but for the commoner. And, and, I, and I don't know how that ties into to, to, to current times here in South Korea. But um, as you just mentioned, you know, I, you don't see a lot of books in, in South Korea. Well, I think the bigger problem, um, and again, the New Yorker kind of pointed this out, was is that during 
uh, Korea's development years, literature was not was was somewhat ignored uh, as a, as a as a subject of study. It was viewed as an extracurricular activity and a waste of time at that. You know that if you were caught reading a novel, you know. You know, you were likely to be, you know, your parents or somebody was likely to tell you, you know, you should be studying, you know, electrical engineering or something to that effect. Um, you know, during the development years, uh, education uh, tended to be very, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it tended to be very, very um, pragmatic. You know, uh, a lot of aspects of society were very, very pragmatic. It's, you know, screw the screw the you know, the the bells and whistles it's you know how do we how do we get ourselves out of poverty the fastest that we can um and everything else was kind of put on the back burner that's starting to change now but um it takes a while to overcome that kind of that 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 modern heritage of of you know if it's not electrical engineering or if it's you know, not, you know, uh, structural engineering. It's not worth knowing. I just remember the, the last time I had to do what they call a visa run in South Korea, but I'm sure, you know, it's very familiar. Anytime you're an expat, you know, country to country, I'm sure that's the term they use. And a lot of people go to Japan, you know, it's close. Uh, it's a fun trip to go there. You know, the exchange rates, um, not super good, like some other places in Asia, but you know, it's okay. Or at least it was, you know, maybe a year and a half ago when I had to go. Um, and I got my visa and I had to stay there like a week because it just takes like four or five business days to get, you know, something stamped in your uh, passport now. And I was riding the subway every day or, you know, some sort of subway train combination. And I was just amazed at how many books I saw. And when I was back in Germany um, more than a year ago for work, I was just amazed by how many books I saw on the subway. Now, I know in South Korea, you could argue technology might interfere with something like a book and people could be reading on their phones. Uh, maybe I'm nosy, but people are not reading on their phones. And if they are, they're reading you know, text messages, they're reading Facebook and something like that. So um, I guess my point here that I'm just trying to make is that I hope Korea can get a Nobel Prize in literature. That would be amazing. But I think it's, it's, it's a strange situation trying to promote Korean reading, Korean authors abroad when even here in South Korea, that maybe should be something they should do. Well, I mean, again, to be fair, the government has, um, at least at the rhetorical level, uh, been putting uh, a lot of emphasis on uh, trying to get the country reading again. I mean, you know, with, uh, you, you know, made it a bit, you know, uh, when she was uh, first took office, she talked a lot about um, you know restoring the importance of the humanities in Korea and and promoting the humanities. Um, so uh, you know it's the government's uh, it, the government is aware of the problem and they they do want to do something about it. But it's again you know you know holding you know lectures in libraries or promoting book reading in school. I mean. It takes a while for that sort of thing to catch on. And, you know, also technology is changing now. I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, when they do read books, you know, they're reading them on, you know, tablets or, or their iPhones. Um, they're listening to books a lot now. Shit. I mean, I, you know, um, it, and this is probably doesn't sound good as, you know, coming from somebody who works in publishing, but 
a lot of the books now I, I listen to. Yeah, well, I mean, I did that back in high school. I, I had I would listen to Michael Moore books narrated by Michael Moore <laughs> on tape. Right. <laughs> well, I was like driving to and from work when I was like 16. Um, so, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, audible.com. It's something that started off and it was kind of like this website you heard every once in a while. But I think now it's owned by Amazon. I have friends right. from college who I went to broadcasting school with who now work for Audible doing different things. So, you know. Right. I've got an account with Audible. I mean, yes, like a highlight of my month is when my credits start coming in. It was like, uh, yeah, what can I buy? You know, what can I buy now? There you are. But, you know, I don't know. I just, but I guess a, a final thing to, and I know it's not the exact same thing, but it's very interesting to be talking about the government promoting reading. And at the same time, we see that the Comfort Women uh, book author was found guilty. And you see that the uh, Shankai Shinbun um, journalist was not found guilty, but had to go through all that, that whole dance and like, you know, have a uh, defense and like worry about going to jail and all those different things for writing. Right. Um, well, that's actually one of the ironies about this. whole. It's, that's part of the irony here. Um, the other irony is that um, a lot of the books that are getting the most interest overseas are books that don't necessarily make Korea look good. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, Korean literature. Um, there, a lot of your best Korean literature. Well, I guess you could say this about the best literature anywhere um, is not necessarily happy, smiley stuff. You know, and Korea in particular, it's a country that's had a rough contemporary history. Um, you know, colonization, war, dictatorship, forced march, industrialization. And its artistic scene reflects this, including its literature scene. So um, a lot of their novels that are getting attention overseas, um, yeah, I mean, they're about themes in contemporary Korean history that, yeah, um, if you're the government and you're promoting Korean literature because you want to promote Korean culture overseas, um, it's a bit awkward. And to the Literature Translation Institute of Korea's credit, uh, they've been trans, you know, they've been translating works that, you know, don't pull punches, right? That do show the warts. Um, but one does wonder how long, you know, uh, one does wonder, you know, if one day, you know, a Korean author does win the Nobel Prize and it's for a work that's, you know, um, considered seditious you know or if it had you know if it's by if it's done by a writer with a dissident streak you know how is the country going to react to that or is that more to the point actually not the country how is the government going to react to that yeah you you might see some sort of turn you know let's go back to science or something you know um like i said i i wish nothing but the best for korea I, i live here for a reason i really like this country but and once again, like the whole thing with the uh, with the, the school books, you know, like the, the one government approved high school history book. I mean, like the government can promote literature all at once, but it, you just have to look at a newspaper to see that it's also not promoting, you know, literature so much. So but yeah, we, we spent a lot of time on this. I'm, I'm glad you brought this this up. Uh, this is something that we, we might not have talked about otherwise. And it's you know, it's not it's nice to not always talk about the same types of thing all the time. So. Touche, Rob. I, I enjoyed that story and I'm glad that we discussed it. Um, 
Final story here before we get into our main topic, talking about this long-range missile deal coming out of North Korea. Um, but our last story, the new CEO of the Incheon International Airport Corporation says that the airport is in a state of emergency following a series of security breaches. Um, this is especially surprising to hear um, probably for anyone who's familiar with South Korea and the airport because it's routinely ranked one of the best, if not the best airports in the world. Um, personally, I was just there a couple of days ago. My girlfriend's brother came back from an extended trip um, while he was on break from, from university. Um, I was just there picking him up at the airport and I still had a good time. It's, it's a great airport. Everything works pretty well. It's clean you know it's just a good good airport to be in you know anytime you have to spend some time there it's a little less bad being at Inchon um, but nonetheless the Korea Times reports that this announcement from the airport's new CEO comes in an effort to tackle recent problems that have tarnished the reputation that otherwise has been very good um, because of its loose security now off uh, after a series of illegal entries of transit passengers also suspected explosives were found at the airport recently as well as luggage mishandling that caused flight delays last month. Um, so what do you think about this, Rob? Is is this maybe the beginning of the end of the long streak? I mean, you can only stay number one or number two for so long uh, for Incheon International, or is this, you know, someone dropped the ball and it's still a very good airport? Oh, it's a wonderful airport. And a lot of these things, again, it's um, everything's relative. Yeah, uh, for Incheon Airport, they've had a, uh, they've had a, a rough... A uh, couple of weeks. It's um, been a bad couple of weeks for just airports in general. They right. had the Jeju problem with right. the, the delays. Right. Um, but, you know, compared to airports, let's say in, you know, the United States, for example, um, I think a lot of these airports wish they had Incheon International Airport problems. Um, yeah, part of the problem with Incheon Airport is um, they haven't, in terms of security, uh, yeah, maybe they're getting a little lax. For example, you had one Chinese couple. They broke their security gates in 14 minutes, right? Then you had another Vietnamese guy who forced open an automatic immigration gate, right? During the morning hours, nobody even noticed the guy, right? No alarm sounded. Um, you had another Chinese couple who was able to breach security. Um, then you had the bomb hoax. One of the things I did read recently was that... Um, and you don't know how much of this is like the authorities trying to, you know, scapegoat, but uh, that there are certain quote unquote brokers uh, that are, you know, working for like, you know, man, you know, brokers who are trying to uh, arrange uh, for illegal immigrant manpower in small factories in the countryside and whatnot, um, that they're uh, helping people get through the airport. But, even if that were the case, is I don't see how that, how that, you know, how that explains some of the some of the things that have been going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they need to tighten the ship. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is that unlike the West, where we, where the sense of threat is a lot more palpable, um, I, I don't know if the authorities at Incheon International Airport or you know, society in general feel that way. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's definitely security threats in Korea, but they're more, you know, nuke and missile and, 
uh, other things. Um, Ironically, the security threats are actually pretty severe, but it's 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 less tied to like a single dude walking around. Well, I mean, there was a time in Korea's past where it was. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, obviously, you know, when the North Koreans you know, blew up, you know, North Korea, uh, South Korean passenger jets. I mean, there was a time where that happened, but it hasn't happened in such a long time that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, but I mean, let me, let me give you a, for instance, I, I just mentioned my, my girlfriend's brother came back from the airport after being away for a while. So, uh, we were very nice. We went all the way to the airport, took the airport railroad, um, which is this, you know, train that is, is very fast and it's basically a subway, but they call it the railroad from Hongdae to, to Incheon and all the way back. So a couple hours, you know, brought him back and we went to Seoul Station. He's going to take a train home, the KTX, the fast train here in South Korea. Not a bullet train, but fast, comfortable train. Very nice. I went to the bathroom with my girlfriend's uh, brother and we walked in and I saw a guy that, I'll, I'll just be completely honest, I thought he was, um, what, what's the correct term you want to say? Um, uh, like special needs type of guy, you know, um, like perhaps below average intelligence, you know, learning disabled, something like that. Um, because he was acting very strangely. Um, and he was singing the 007 James Bond theme in the bathroom. It was a very crowded bathroom. Everyone's waiting in line to, to, you know, to use the urinals and the stalls. And he's singing this. All of a sudden he pulls out a gun and starts pointing it at people. And I'm like, Ooh, this is odd. Um, and I didn't know what was going on, but we were in Seoul station and, um, I was the only foreigner there, perhaps, you know, different customs values, but I decided to leave the bathroom and go out and consult the security guy who was standing there with a beret who looked like he was about to kill someone. They all have berets and sunglasses now. And he went inside and he, and he took the man and, um, he walked away. And as he was leaving, he told my girlfriend that this guy comes back like every day and he goes into the bathroom with a gun and sings the James Bond theme and just points the gun at people and acts kind of strange. And they just kind of removed him and there was no alert. Nothing happened. Can you imagine what would have happened if someone was in a bathroom pointing a gun that just looked like a gun at people in Chicago or a major city in the United States? What would have gone down at that point? I mean, they, they would have kicked the crap out of him. Yeah. But uh, although, and, and, and well, that's true, but uh, you know, unlike, you know, places like Chicago you know, you don't have people, you know, you know, taking out guns and shooting each other for real, for the most part, in Korea. So, um, yeah, I could see how they might. And plus, I mean, not to put too fine a point on this, but we, we are talking about Seoul Station here. Um, you know, Seoul Station is somewhat of the city's designated, you know, uh, congregation point for, you know, the city's homeless and mentally ill. I, in fact, actually, this weekend I had a very unpleasant experience at uh, at Seoul Station, um, where uh, where uh, well, I don't want to get into it, but uh, a a homeless uh, person uh, had some very choice words for a colleague of mine. Um, that uh, yeah, I mean, again, that's not. I, not unusual um, for Seoul Station. So I'd be surprised if the same thing went down in Incheon International Airport, though. Um, you know, international, you know, Incheon International Airport, say what you will, it's also, um, the authorities do view it as, it is something that they like to show off to, you know, international visitors. It's obviously the first thing that international visitors see. Um, 
you know, it's kind of a model of Korean efficiency, of Korean cleanliness. It's, um, you know, so I don't think you'd see that in the bathrooms there, but Seoul Station is, well, it is what it is. Um, but I mean, actually, the thing with the security within Chen International Airport is kind of surprising because one of the things I've always been most impressed with, you know, uh, you know, when I when I go to the airport, is just watching the the security guys, as you point out, with their, you know, with their berets and their ray bands and their submachine guns. Always really nice if you talk to them, but they look like they will kill you. Oh yeah, no, I mean, yeah, well, even the guys who are really like trained killers. Um, I remember a friend of mine. Um, and this has nothing to do with the story, but I remember a photographer friend of mine, uh, he made a mistake of, uh, he was hiking around, he made a mistake of getting too close to what is the, 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 the Korean equivalent of Langley. And, um, yeah, I mean, people like, you know, came out in the black SUVs, you know, guys, uh, very fearsome looking guys came out to greet them. Um, uh, but they were very, very nice, very polite. <laughs> Yeah, they just told him, sorry, you can't be here. <laughs> and your friend, the photographer, he was a foreigner? Yeah. Yeah, see, so I, I, it, it's, it's unfortunate because I, when things happen to me, I'm not sure if it's because people are nice or, you know, like, you know, nice in Korea or if it's because I'm a foreigner. Um, I was walking through Iwa sometime in this last um, semester. I recently started grad school, not at Iwa, it's a women's university, but at a school near Iwa. And... I was walking to class. I walked through EY every day and Pak and Hay was supposed to be there that day to give a talk, but the students were protesting and they formed like a human line and they weren't going to let her in and stuff. I didn't know what was going on. So I just walked past and, you know, explained in my, I could explain that much in Korean that I was going to class and could I just get through and they let me go through. And when I got to the top of the hill where all of the Korean secret service agents were, and I could tell there was a black SUV that obviously had Pak and Hay in it. Um, I walked by and they immediately were like, hey, get back, get back. And I'm just like, you know, very quickly in English, hey, like, I'm, I'm just going to class over the other side of the hill. It's, I'm late. Can I just walk through? And the guy called me, looked at me and he said, yeah, that's fine. Just go through. And he spoke very good English. And I don't know that that would have happened if this similar situation had been played out in the United States. And, and so once again, I just bring this up because, like I said, hard to tell if that would have happened if, if I had been a Korean, first of all. But secondly... Um, with what's going on with Inchon, they need to increase some security, sure. But I just, I feel so refreshed to live in a country where we're on the other side of things and maybe something's going to be blown up and a lot of people will die and I'll eat my words, but it's just nice to deal with this side of the problem as opposed to the other side. Right. Well, yeah, like I said, we'll see how long that lasts because, um, you know, when, when, if a serious incident does happen, you know, you might, as happened with the U S you know what I mean? You know, uh, a lot of things changed after 9-11. Well, but 9-11 didn't happen because people were too nice. No, I know that. I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm arguing. What I'm saying is that, you know, events have a way of, of influencing behavior. So um, in the United States, it was 9-11. Uh, in the UK, it was, you know, the IRA campaign during the, you know, during the, 80, the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, you had... The security states, as they've developed in the West, um, yeah, I mean, the, uh, there's been a gradual process of, you know, the the general the general historical trends have not been good. So we'll see. You know, in Korea too. I mean, yeah, you know, Korea used to be a, a full fledged police state, um, and a lot of, you know, uh, 
for example, uh, with a lot of, and in fact, we mentioned it on this podcast before, um, the police here take a, a surprising amount of shit from people. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and 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 I would say too much to use to to use the academic part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's throw it out um, there. Too much. It, it needs to come back. I, I'm not. I'm not saying I disagree with that. But the way I've had this explained to me by friends of mine is that uh, that the police. Uh, this 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 police this meekness on the part of police is in a way a reaction to a time when the police were real assholes where you know the police were the you know the front line of the military dictatorship you know where they were very very feared so you know one might say oh they need to bring that back well yeah they might they, they need to step up their game but you know uh you got to be careful with that. Great topic. We could talk about this for a long time. Um, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but we have North Korean missiles to talk about. Yeah. Is, how could we not talk about North Korea? So or rockets, excuse me. Peaceful. peaceful. <laughs> well, we'll see. Vehicles of peaceful space exploration. That's right. You know, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm going to mention that as well. Our final story here. In a new dare to the United States and its allies, the New York Times is reporting that North Korea has notified agency responsible of the United Nations for navigation safety that it is planning to launch a long-range rocket this month to put a satellite into orbit. That launch is now supposedly going to take place sometime between February 8th, which is coming up here soon, and the 25th. So, you know, decent amount of time, that window. If the launch goes as planned, the rocket's first stage will fall off um, in waters somewhere around the west coast of South Korea, and the second stage in waters uh, east of the Philippines. Um, so I saw this nice graphic that kind of showed those two areas, and that's if it goes according to plan. Um, this notification came after warnings to North Korea advising against a launch from the U.S. and its allies, which considers such a step a cover for developing an intercontinental ballistic missile that can deliver a nuclear bomb. So as you were saying, what exactly is this long-range device going to be used for? Um, of course, under a series of United Nations Security Council resolutions, North Korea is barred from developing nuclear weapons or ballistic missile technologies, but neither of those or other restrictions placed on North Korea really seem to have been able to stop um, what they wanted to do. North Korea asserts that its rocket program is peaceful, and is intended to launch satellites to gather data for weather forecasting and for other scientific purposes. Now, uh, sort of along these lines, also having a, a great deal to do um, with any news coming out of North Korea, the New York Times also put out an article last month after North Korea tested its purported hydrogen bomb, and that article asked the question, quote, how crazy are the North Koreans? The author someone who has spent the past 25 years of his professional life in the United States government, think tanks, and academia trying to stop the North Korean nuclear weapons program, said that, quote, I probably shouldn't say this, but I take my hat off to the North Koreans. They have played their cards extremely well. Despite this episodic outrage, they have managed to become a full-fledged small nuclear power with a growing and increasingly sophisticated arsenal. Moreover, even as they have moved down the nuclear path, they have maintained fairly normal political, economic, and other relations with many countries from China to Ethiopia. In effect, a large number of countries have tacitly accepted North Korea as a nuclear weapon state, end quote. So, uh, Rob, final topic here. What is going on with North Korea? This recent announcement, they'll be firing a long-range rocket to put a satellite into orbit. 
Um, you know, I remember we just recently talked about North Korea after they tested that, you know, purported hydrogen bomb. Um, we both kind of, you know, laughed a little bit, shrugged it off a little bit as more of the same coming from North Korea. You know, we weren't too alarmed by that, even though both of us live here in the Seoul area. Um, should that still be the case? Is this just more of the same or is this maybe up in the ante a little bit? Well, I mean, this is coming right after their uh, their their the support, the supposed H-bomb uh, test. So um, and as, as an act of political theater, as an act of geopolitical theater, it's it's you know, it's it's mildly entertaining, um, you know, uh, you know, definitely more so than the. Uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say that the Iowa primaries were actually the Iowa caucus was pretty entertaining, so. Um, you know I'm from Iowa, right? I do. I do. In fact, I think you, I, I saw on Facebook you've uh, you participated in the caucus. I have caucused as a Democrat and I have caucused as a Republican. I um, would call myself more of an independent, but um, you know, if I had to choose, I would easily call myself a Democrat over a Republican. I fully support Bernie Sanders. However, I will ninety nine point nine percent, you know, most likely support Hillary Clinton if. She gets the nomination, especially with the the Republican candidates we have this year. Um, but at the same time, just real quick before we continue talking about North Korea, the Democrats, they have got to fix their caucus. What a joke. You don't vote for a candidate. You select delegates. I was a delegate. I was one of those people who went to the convention um, years ago when I was in high school. And when I then caucused the next time around with the Republicans when I was back from college, you just write the candidate down on a piece of paper. It's so much easier, right? I, did you hear uh, Cruz's uh, his uh, victory speech? Oh Christ! I mean, it was thirty minutes long, and after the first five minutes, you want to stick a gun in your mouth. Um, you know, uh, Rubio, on the other hand, did very well. Um, his 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 speech was it was spot on. I, I I'm starting to get a lot more confidence in Rubio. Um, but like I said, this has nothing to do with Korea. Yeah, I was gonna say we 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 got we got to talk more North Korea before I put a gun in my mouth. I just I'm getting <laughs> right. so upset about the Iowa caucuses. But good good right. good side chat. Uh, you know, it's it's nice. I participated in it. it. You know, I met all the candidates. Good times. It was it was an interesting time. But yeah, so uh, North Korea uh, up in the ante, not up in the ante. Well, I mean, obviously they're up, they're up in the ante. I mean, they know what they're doing. Um, again, it's a question of how much should we care. Um. You know, this is, again, not the first time they've done this. Um, in fact, I remember the first time they tried to do this, I think they actually shot a rocket over Japanese airspace, um, which, you know, is without telling anybody, which is, you know, unusual. Um, not, you know, not, you know, not the kind of behavior that, you know, most most nations engage in, but it is North Korea. Um, at least they're telling everybody they're going to do it sometime, you know, within the next month. Um, you know, obviously the countries around them are taking it seriously. Uh, I think South Korea just, uh, uh, just, uh, put another, uh, Aegis, uh, destroyer out of patrol to, you know, uh, to monitor, you know, uh, the flight path of any rocket that comes out of North Korea. Um, Actually, you know, the South Koreans have got, uh, you know, Aegis, uh, Aegis uh, warships out there. The Japanese have them out there. Uh, the Americans have uh, some Aegis ships out there. You know, they're all cooperating with each other to, you know, gain, you know gather intelligence on a, on a, on a potential, ro- on, you know, on a potential rocket launch. So, 
I, I would say um, uh, it, it makes for great ad for Lockheed Martin. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, and any time if you have stock in Lockheed Martin, I think this is, you know, this is really good for you. Well, and, and any time um, you see South Korea and Japan working together, yeah, um, you know, I have a feeling that's gonna be happening a lot more now. Um, yeah, um, you know the uh, the the piece in the uh, was it the New York Times? Is it Joel Witt, right? Yeah, it's Joel Witt. It was an interesting argument, and I think it's something that a lot of North Korean watchers generally agree with, is that you know North Korea is not crazy. What they are is ultra, ultra realist. You know, uh, everything that they do is, you know, is calculated. Uh, you know, uh, you know, sometimes it works for them, sometimes it doesn't. But you know, there's always a calculation that they do. Um, and a, in fact, they, they, are realists to a point that would make Henry Pitt Kissinger blush. In fact, actually the article itself pointed out something that was interesting is that people who have, you know, you know, there have been occasions where the North Koreans have gotten a chance to meet and talk with Henry Kissinger. And, uh, apparently they're quite respectful. It's like them learning, you know, I think the article said it's like them being able to learn from the foot of the, you know, at the feet of the master. My own feeling is that North Korea's ultra realism is the result of is 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 possible only because they're completely free of any meaningful friendships internationally. You know, uh, most countries, you know, they have alliances, they have you know good relations with other countries around the world, and you know that kind of impedes their ability to act like complete assholes. Uh, whereas North Korea doesn't have that problem. Because they don't have any real friends. I mean, even China, um, you know, China tolerates them and they support them for, out of, you know, pure cynicism at this point. But the North Koreans know that's not going to change. So they don't really have to modify their behavior accordingly. Um, so it doesn't, if you, if you study international relations, if you, you know, um, and it, it's, it's an interesting case study. Um, so yeah, I guess it will, you know, with this missile launch, we'll see how it goes. One thing I would say though, um, and this is something that after that last podcast where I, you know, yeah, I mean, it was where basically I said, I didn't really care. Um, there is a caveat to that. And I, I pointed out one, which is, you know, North Korea could turn around and sell, you know, uh, nuclear or weapons technology to countries we would rather, or, or groups or countries we, we'd rather not have them um i brought up syria before um uh, with missile technology there's uh, evidence to suggest that pyongyang has been you know cooperating with the iranians um so there's that but there's another issue too uh which is in the event that north korea i don't ha- i'm pretty sure that the current regime is not suicidal but I'm also pretty certain that the current regime could collapse overnight. It's one of those things that, you know, everybody, I know, I know what people are going to say and that, you know, we've been talking about the end of North Korea since, you know, since the 1990s and it's been 20 years It's and it hasn't happened yet. But just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't. Right. And, you know, we've seen regimes, you know, in the last couple of years, in the last, you know, decade, 
you know, that we thought were pretty strong and stable regimes all of a sudden just completely fall apart. Syria comes to mind, right? Um, Libya, places like this, they just imploded. Um, I could see what the, the, the nightmare scenario, and I think this is the nightmare scenario for everybody, is that North Korea implodes. And then you have factions within North Korea, you know, the military, you know, command structure breaks down. You have, you know, different units, different divisions fighting with one another. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, weapons of mass destruction, you know, come into play. Missiles, nukes, you know, what have you. And, uh, you know, when you have nukes at play in a civil war, things could get ugly. And plus, you know, while I'm sure that the, the leaders of North Korea, the actual people at the top, don't believe their own propaganda, I'm not so sure about, you know, low-level and mid-level, you know, officers in the North Korean army. You know, because they, they don't have the same type of access to information that the total the leaders at the top do. So, you know, um, you know, where Kim Jong-un could, you know, wake up, you know, I'm pretty sure he wakes up every morning and, you know, reads the Wall Street Journal or, you know, the Chosen Elbow in South Korea. Yeah, there, there's the, the advertisement. Well, you know, I mean, look, you know, I'm pretty sure he fires up his iPad and, you know, is, you know, reading the Daily Mail or whatever. You're right. Um, you know, uh, you know, Captain Kim or Captain Lee of, you know, you know, the, the, I don't know, the fifth, you know, I don't know, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the fifth armored division of the Korean people's army. He doesn't have that, those same type of options. You know, he's getting his information straight, you know, you know, he's getting his information, uh, in his worldview shaped, uh, you know, purely by local sources, right? So, you know, what those guys believe and what those guys think possible, I don't know. And that that's what worries me is, you know, you, you know when, if, you know, when the wheels do come off uh, the wagon and you have different, you know, groups of... I should point out that I really hope this doesn't happen, that when North Korea collapses, it's one of those. And I do think it's going to collapse, by the way. Um, but when it does, that it's, you know, more of, a, of an East Germany-like situation where, you know, the nation basically, as, as a, where the, the nation comes together and says, look, we're going to join South Korea or, you know, we're, you know, the nation comes together and says, you know, this is the end and we're going to move forward. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. I was going to say, I, I, I am obviously someone who has a lot more to learn about the Korean Peninsula, but everything I have seen and heard and read tells me that that's not going to happen. A lot of South Koreans don't want reunification, and they're actually kind of afraid of it. NKNews.org, they actually just had a, um, an opinion piece that was written by um, a friend of mine, um, and he talked about how South Korea should pass on reunification. Well, I don't agree with that, and um, but I mean, look, the issue of re- even in the best case scenario, there's going to be a lot of sacrifice, a lot of pain, a lot of you know uh, difficulty during the transition. So, I mean, that's that goes without saying. Even in the German ca- example, that yeah, that was certainly the case. Um, what I'm 
you know, what I'm more worried about, and this is where the weapons of mass destruction issue comes in, is if North Korea goes to pieces and you do have, uh, and you do have uh, something akin to Syria or something akin to what's going on in Libya, where you have different armed factions squaring off, um, then those weapons of mass destruction are no longer a joke. You know, they, then they become very, very interesting in a very, very bad sort of way. Um, so that's where I think we should be concerned. Um, not necessarily that Kim Jong-un is going to wake up in a bad mood one day and nuke uh, Seoul or nuke Seattle or, or whatnot. Now, it's, it's what comes after him is what we really should be worried about. So I, I guess final question, we're hitting about an hour here on the podcast, let's wrap it up, but um, maybe this isn't a question that you can't answer, but it's... I don't think we actually really discussed the missile, but <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, yeah. the missile, but I mean... Or the rocket, excuse me. I, I don't want to slander North Korea here. It's satellite launch vehicle. Th- this, is, this is actually my question, though, so I guess maybe we'll, we'll finally discuss it. At what point... Does either South Korea, the United States, or both of them together with Japan, at what point do they say enough is enough? At what point perhaps should they say enough is enough? Um, North Korea has attacked an island. They've basically sunk a battleship. Um, They've done lots of, there's the landmine thing that happened recently. Uh, I just read that they're sending balloons to South Korea that have used toilet paper in them. I mean, I thought that was. Creative. I just, I just, th- I just yeah, bring that up because it's that's really thinking outside the box. Yeah, it's funny. It's obviously not as bad as sinking a battleship uh, or something, but yeah. Um, at what point, even with all the artillery that's trained on Seoul and with all of the casualties that are basically guaranteed from any person I've ever spoken to who knows what they're talking about on this matter, if there was ever an actual you know, physical battle between the two, Seoul would basically, you know, be set on fire. Um, Even with all that being true, at what point is there a line that has to be drawn? Because they're just progressing. No, I don't think there is. And as far as North Korea's weapons of mass destruction program, I don't really think there is a line to be drawn. Because, I mean, if there was a line to be drawn, it would have been drawn a long time ago. So we're past that point. Yeah, we're way past that point now. I mean... Yeah, the the ability to put it on a delivery system that could reach the United States is interesting, but I believe that technically they already have that capability of hitting the West Coast of the U.S. I mean, so, you know, and and again, while that's scary, especially if you live in a place like Seattle or Portland, um, they've long had the ability to wreak havoc in Japan and Korea, so... Uh, you know, even before the nuke program, you know, with, you know, other weapons of mass destruction and with their rocket program and obviously their artillery program, uh, their artillery units that are, that are long, that are trained on Seoul. So, um, you know, I mean, where do you draw the line? Well, I, I think what we've seen in the past is that we draw the lines when the lines need to be drawn. For example, when South Korea... Uh, or when North Korea attacks an island, the South Koreans fire back, right, at the point of attack. You know, when there are incidents along the DMZ, the Koreans respond, um, usually emptying several amounts, you know, several times the amount of artillery that they, that they received, right? Um, the plan so far is to ensure that, um, that provocations, when they occur, 
um, they remain localized. And I think until you see meaningful change, you know, in North Korea, I, I think that's probably the best you can do. Now, the good news is, is that it's basically worked so far. I mean, deterrence has worked, right? I mean, you know, North Korea hasn't invaded South Korea since, you know, since 1950. So, um, Basically, it's worked. <laughs> There's a sign in front of the DMZ that says so many years since North Korea has invaded South Korea. I right. Mean, yeah, it's been 50. I, but I, I think you could argue that it, in a way it hasn't worked. Um, I don't know. I just it just seems to me like every time something happens. Um, you know, just like now, the, the South Korean government officials said that like North Korea will have to pay a hefty price or something like that, but that nothing happens. Right. And we are right. And we know it's bullshit. The North Koreans know North Koreans know it's bullshit. In fact, actually, uh, with that New York times piece, what was interesting was that the North Koreans sort of will flat out tell you, um, it's actually gotten to the point that the North Koreans suspect that, or at least, yeah, that the United States is the United States wants them to develop nukes and missiles because it gives them an excuse to, um, you know, keep troops in South Korea and Japan and to, you know, work militarily with, with Japan and, and, and South Korea. And it's gotten to the point that, you know, they, they actually, they, that at least some people in North Korea suspect that, you know, the United States is, uh, you know, that they're playing a long game here, <laughs> which if that were true, I'd be actually impressed. You know, uh, I, get, I think it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was Joel Witt. Let me just, here's what he actually says. Yeah, don't get me, no, don't get me wrong. The North Koreans may know a lot about the outside world, but they don't know everything, even about the United States, their main adversary. In one meeting, an official asked, why do the president and secretary of state keep saying the United States will not allow North Korea to have nuclear weapons when, in fact, you are not doing much to stop us? He deduced that there must be a hidden agenda. It's because you want us to have nuclear weapons as an excuse to tighten your grip on South Korea and Japan, your two allies. We responded that there was no hidden agenda and that the United States really did want the North Korea to, uh, really did not want the North to have those weapons. I'm not sure we convinced him. Yeah, but no, I mean, that's a decent point. I mean, uh, the, the UN sanctions on North Korea, for, for the most part, are not to curb the, the nuclear um, weapon issue. There are other sanctions. So, I mean, it was interesting reading that. Right. I mean, so, yeah, we're not doing much. Um, you know, I think partly, um, I know that, uh, again, the guy, uh, Joshua does one free Korea. I know it drives him up the wall when people say that, uh, you know, but North Korea already has lots of sanctions on it because it'll be the first to tell you that, that the sanctions on North Korea are actually not that severe, that they could be a lot, lot worse. Um, but you know, Nobody really wants to get serious about, you know, confronting North Korea, um, especially the Chinese, least of all the Chinese who, you know, have different strategic goals uh, than the United States. So, um, yeah, um, it's a complicated issue, right? Cause you, I mean, you do have the, the Chinese involved and, you know, uh, you, you don't want the North Koreans to go nuclear and you don't want them to get these weapons programs, these missile pro you don't want them to have these missile programs, but how far are you willing to push it? Right. Especially with the North Koreans, because the North Koreans, like I said, I don't think they're crazy. Joel Witt doesn't think they're crazy, but the North Koreans do a very, very good job of convincing everybody that they're crazy. I think a lot of Americans think they're crazy. Yeah. 
No, a lot of Americans think they're crazy. A lot of people, Americans who should know better think they're crazy. Yeah. Um, and it's an image that the North Koreans work very, very hard to cultivate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when you have a, a, a when you have a country like North Korea, you, 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 you don't, you know, you're afraid of pushing things too far because, you know, ultimately, yeah, even if they have a nuclear weapon and even if they have a, a delivery system, you know, can they use it without being turned into, you know, without, can they use it without the United States turning South Korea into an island? Right. And no, they can't. Although, um, again, not to, again, to direct your readers to uh, another article, but uh, uh, one of the editors of the Korea Times today penned a piece on, on uh, the nuclear umbrella and uh, why he thinks that the Americans might not live up to their obligations under the nuclear umbrella, and this is why South Korea uh, needs to develop uh, its own nuclear arsenal. Yeah, I saw a picture that was posted today on social media. People were protesting, and it had a sign that um, in in Korean basically said, "Like we need our own nuclear weapons." And uh, again, I, I've said it once on this podcast before. I'll say it again. I am fully in agreement with that. You know, I've been on the South Korean nuke bandwagon for a long, long time, and <laughs> I was there before it was hip. I'm not getting off that ride now. You're like Bernie Sanders. You're like, I've been saying these things for 30 years. No one's been listening to me. Slightly less like Larry David, but yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I saw a great Onion article because I, I've seen some um, sort of mean but still funny Onion articles about Hillary Clinton. And I said, where are all these Bernie Sanders Onion articles? There's this one where he says he flies off the stage because he throws his hands up too hard, just you know, <laughs> flies into the crowd. Yeah, I'm not a huge... Yeah, obviously I'm not a huge Bernie Sanders fan, but the man is something of a national treasure. Oh yeah, he's a even if yeah even if you don't support him, boy yeah he's he's a fun guy to watch talk. All right, well, uh, always a topic that we'll probably be discussing again here with North Korea. This is just the latest the 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 long range missiles, but uh, it's getting damn late there, uh, Rob. So we'll let you go, and um, I think we might take a break this next week because of Solal. I'm not quite sure. Um, so we'll either talk next week or you'll have a good Solal vacation and we'll talk the week after. All right. If, uh, we don't, uh, if, we, uh, yeah, if we don't do one next week, uh, well, you all have a good uh, Lunar uh, New Year holiday. There we are. Well, thank you, Rob, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.